Hello, and welcome to episode four of What's on the Pile, the podcast where four friends talk with each other about movies they haven't seen for their own amusement. This week, we're going with something a little more recent as we delve into the twisty, curvy, sciency y world of Tenet, Christopher Nolan's newest feature. Starring Johan Olfsak and Robert Pattinson, Ten- Tenet is a kind of spy thriller by way of Nolan's high-concept science fiction. Uh, I believe this was on most of our piles. Uh, being a recent film and, and out on on demand uh, currently. Um, I know it was on, I hadn't seen it before, so this was my first screening. Uh, what about you, Shane? I hadn't seen it either. I actually have not seen a movie in the theater since, I was looking last, uh, what came out last year. I think the last movie I saw was either Parasite or uh, Birds of Prey. So yeah, I, I hadn't gone out to see it yet. How about you, Jenner? Uh, this one, I actually, I did not catch this in the theater. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, my brother, uh, uh, did, uh, managed to catch it. Uh, but, uh, and he was the one who, uh, warned me in advance that turn on the subtitles, even if you're watching it by yourself, turn on. I found the subtitles very helpful. Yep. Uh, That's not a bad suggestion. I should have done that. Some, uh, I mean, some people have referred to this as uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Nolan's latest volley in uh, the war on dialogue, <laughs> uh, but uh, mostly I found it uh, uh, pretty followable. But yes, absolutely, the subtitles help. But I I didn't actually uh, uh, catch it until it uh, hit video, at which point I put it up, uh, picked it up directly because, well, my good God, what else am I doing? And Don, you had not seen this, correct? No, the last film I saw in the theater. Well, let's before we get into the movie itself, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, this movie, you can kind of tell it was meant to be seen theatrically, uh, but it got yeah. completely, it got the shaft with the pandemic as everything else has. Um, what do you guys, how do you guys feel about, uh, about watching a, a theatrical film at home? Well, so I actually did what I never do is I actually turned off all the lights, turned the sound way up, put down my phone, except to take notes, uh, had a bag of snacks with me. So I tried as close as possible to emulate the theatrical experience at home, which I should do more often. That was actually really cool. Yeah, that is a lot of fun to do. I, I love turning the lights down and just getting enveloped by the film. I, uh, I did not do that. I did the opposite of that. <laughs> I you watched it on, it on my phone? laptop with the lights on and <laughs> everything. Uh, in fact, I wa- was watching part of it while I was waiting for the landlord to show up so I could <laughs> so I can sign my lease from here. <laughs> but he didn't show up, <laughs> so I had to text him in the middle of tenant to go, "Hey, man, where the hell are you?" <laughs> um, uh, but I could tell from the very start, even watching on the laptop, from the very first scene, the way the music was, I was like, this was meant to be in a theater. <laughs> it was still pretty good, even for my laptop's tinny speakers. It was still pretty good. It had a nice effect, but I could I could hear the effect that was intended in the theater, and I could imagine that it would have been uh, quite something. Yeah, because the movie... The movie starts literally with a bang because I'm watching the movie. It opens with an orchestra. I'm like, all right, orchestra. They're setting up. Let me go grab a drink. Then boom. I was like, oh, shit. Like as I was in the yes. kitchen. Did anybody know. notice that one sort of sting that that some, that they did when I think when they punched a drum or something? Yes. Or an instrument. They did a sting like a, a Hans Zimmer sting. And I was like, was that a joke? <laughs> <laughs> did they do that as a joke because they use it so much in Interstellar that people were no. it? And they did like videos blocking it, and uh, like, <laughs> and they did it again. And I was like, "Oh come on!" But they didn't go back to it in the. In the it was the only yeah. moment. <laughs> That's very funny. I, I don't know. I, I call that the sort of uh, the sort of uh, reference that is uh, probably more affectionate than than taking the piss, so to speak. Yeah, that, that, that's probably that's probably correct. I mean, I mean, I was a tremendous fan of all of uh, of all of uh, Zimmer's scores for uh, uh, for Nolan. In any case, uh, Interstellar being absolutely not an exception, uh, I did always uh, know with some amusement that uh, when uh, Zimmer uh, got around to uh, scoring the Batman movies, that uh, he managed to one up Danny Elfman and his three notes by creating a two note. <laughs> Which he then won up himself on, where uh, with uh, with Inception, where he actually had a literal one note light motif, uh, just as uh, sort of an interesting example in 
I, I would say sort of uh, Zimmer-esque maximalism, but that's a little bit off topic. There. Did Did Zimmer do the soundtrack for this one? No, no this Ludwig no. Uh, was who? Yeah, uh, Ludwig Göransson, who is. I don't think he's one of Zimmer's students directly. I mean, he's not like Harry Gregson Williams or Rupert Gregson Williams or Klaus Bedelt or one of those guys, but uh, they do seem to travel in a lot of the same uh, uh, cinematic circles, so to speak. Um, but uh, in any case, no, the um, my uh, my own experience of, uh, of seeing the film first time, which as I say, was you know right after it came out on video. Uh, my, uh, well, my lifestyle is designed around a theatrical grade uh, experience in my living room. Uh, the, the whole room, it's not a dedicated theater room per se, but uh, the whole room is surrounded with blackout curtains. We've got the 92 inch projection screen, HDR capable projector and uh, a 7.2.2 Dolby Atmos sound system. So I think I probably got, uh, in lieu of having an actual 4K projector instead of just one that's uh, just 4K compatible, I think I probably got about as close as anyone as cheap as I am is capable of getting to a proper theatrical experience. No, I think they describe that as a home theater. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, how, so how was the experience then uh, compared to, uh, do you wish you'd seen it theatrically? Uh, well, I mean, I wish I w I'd seen it theatrically just in general, uh, but uh, that that's... You know, circumstances not really allowing for it. Uh, it was pretty overwhelming in my living room as well. Uh, like I say, the, the good sound system with a uh, slight uh, a boost to the dialogue levels in the center channel, particularly, uh, as well as, of course, the option of subtitles. Uh, given what I'm uh, given to understand were a lot of issues with uh, this theatrically, particularly in terms of dialogue clarity. Uh, basically, they were apparently really unforgiving for not particularly well-calibrated theaters. Uh, I have a well-calibrated theater, so I thought it came through just fine. Yeah, I mean, the subtitles were a lifesaver for me. Yeah. Um, especially because some of the, some of those names that are thrown around, which we'll talk about later, are, it is important to see them in print, I think. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Um, there's, uh, there's something I wanted to bring up, uh, speaking of in print, um, about this movie that, that, I did not catch. I did not. I should have gotten this, but the title itself, "Tenet," uh, is referencing the middle word from the famous uh, Seder Square, which uh, we we should all know and love. It's a uh, it's a five word uh, uh, palindrome square. It was uh, first discovered in Pompeii, um, and the words are uh, Seder, uh, Arepo, Rhodus, uh, Tenet, and Opera. Not in that order. Uh, but the five of those together make uh, make palindromes. Go, so the words go back, forth, up, down, across the entire grid. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's the perfect symbolism for this movie. Uh, to say nothing of being the uh, explicit subject of a certain project uh, that uh, that our ringmaster here uh, has been laboring away on for some yes, time. I I, I'll, I will pimp myself just a little bit on this. <laughs> uh, Tongle is a is a game based on the Seder Square, which is why I found it so amusing to discover that in the movie. Um, and you can get it on the App Store and the Play Store. So uh, enough enough pimping. Let's <laughs> let's talk about this movie. You're a uh. humble man, but uh, I mean, uh, I, I'm actually kind of kicking myself for not having noticed that earlier as well. So uh, it's a foo on foo on all of us, but uh, but good on you to catch <laughs> it directly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actors bef before we get into the plot itself. Um, I don't know uh, uh, Juhan Olfsak's career at all. Uh, had you had anybody seen him in anything before? I don't know who that person is, but the lead in this movie was John David. Oh, God bless. <laughs> That's IMDb. IMDb got me. I, I was I was very confused because that did not that was not the name that was on Amazon. Uh, so is that name someone who's that is that is probably the first character in the film before uh, before the protagonist shows up. I, I wrote it down. Uh, that's all on me. <laughs> uh, I was terrified of mispronouncing it. Uh, now I feel even worse. So <laughs> but now you don't have to worry about it. You're the lead terrified of mispronouncing John David Washington? Yeah, I was like, now you're off the hook. You got an easy one. John. You should have gotten that from the starring portion. Uh, I'm glad this came up in the podcast itself and we didn't go for an hour talking about how I 
came up with the wrong name. Oh my God, how embarrassing! <laughs> oh, we we are all for we are all for affectionately messing with you, but I don't think we were going to let that go on. That <laughs> <long>. <laughs> I was just confused. I wasn't messing with him. Yeah, what? <laughs> Well, I, I'd like to know more about John David Washington. Oh, well, let's right. see. Uh, aside from uh, a, uh, a a featured role in the uh, the HBO series Ballers, uh, this is his uh, his second lead. The first one having been uh, Black Klansman. Oh, uh, that's on my pile. That Mine is actually too. on my pile <laughs> as well. Uh, uh, but perhaps uh, more famously, he is uh, Denzel Washington's son. And you can really tell because the dude oh. absolutely oozes yeah. charisma. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things about this uh, this movie is a lot of people accused protagonist, you know, our protagonist, uh, of being a little bit underwritten. But frankly, that didn't matter. The uh, the uh, the uh, absolute ownership of any scene that he appears in uh, uh, on John David Washington's part is more than enough, uh, to, uh, to carry this across, uh, from, from that standpoint. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of, uh, of, uh, James Bond, not simply in the, um, canonical James Bond movies, but also in the apocryphal, it's a James Bond movie. If you realize it's a James, uh, Bond movie, uh, Jim Jarmusch's film, The Limits of Control, uh, and I apologize for anybody who hasn't seen The Limits of Control. That kind of constitutes a spoiler there, but the movie's uh, more than a decade old now, and so I figure we can, uh, at this point, the spoiler is the best way to tell the picture. Absolutely amazing film, best described as a James Bond movie with no exposition whatsoever, uh, fronted by a uh, gentleman named uh, Isaac de Bancole, uh, who is... Uh, uh, I believe uh, African, but uh, in any event, if you watch the movie, the gag is it's a James Bond movie. It's just nobody ever explains anything that's going on. <laughs> but uh, amazing picture in its own right. But this did remind me a little bit of that uh, as well, uh, especially given that James Bond movies, for all of their twistiness, are not nearly as intricate in general as this one usually there's a a reveal halfway through the movie and that that's the reveal for the entire movie uh i mean there's maybe a little twist toward the end but generally the, the bond movies are not really freighted on that sort of thing now just given the uh the very nature of the film i'm i'm not sure how whether or not i would describe the twists as actual twists and more just a logical progression of what was actually happening at any given time yeah, I never yeah, took anything yeah. as really a twist. You know, I'll, I'll agree with that. Most of the uh, things that turn out as not even necessarily twists per se or reveals uh, are pretty much things that you can see coming. Um, I know there's a, at least one right at the end uh, that uh, where they tipped the hat, and I probably could have done without it. Uh, but, which part? Uh, which part was that? Okay. Uh, uh, specifically, uh, uh, Robert Pattinson, who has uh, is a fantastic actor, and I don't think he's ever been uh, better or more natural feeling uh, than he was in this picture. But uh, the bit where he, you know, explains the precise character of uh, of his relationship with the uh, with the protagonist huh. right at the end, I thought that might have been just a bridge too far in terms of exposition. Um, but you have to figure. It probably it clarified things for audiences that are maybe not quite as savvy as we like to kid ourselves. It's entirely possible Christopher Nolan has learned from the past and said, "I want people to be into this movie and not not just questioning what 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 the science is about and whether or not it's actually possible." Uh, it doesn't really matter in the end for this movie whether or not the science is possible. I mean he even says it right away. Don't try to understand it. Just feel it. That's something this, the scientist says to uh, protagonist as soon as she uh, shows him the time inversion. I actually thought, I, I was like, uh-oh, when she said that because um, another filmmaker, a film by a filmmaker I love, but, but a film I don't love is Looper. I love Ryan Johnson. But um, at one point, you know, in Looper, Bruce Willis is asked point blank, how does time travel work? And he says, I don't want to talk about it. And that's because in that movie, there are no rules. The rules are all over the place in that movie, time travel-wise. So I thought that was Christopher Nolan giving himself an out when she said, don't try to understand it, which ended up not being true. 
So I was a little wary going in based on that that line. They and they reiterate the line later when uh, when pro- the protagonist is trying to ask Neil uh, Robert Pattinson all about. Um, uh, what's going on? Give me the truth. I want to know what's happening. And he eventually just says, does your brain hurt? Does your head hurt yet? And he's like, yeah. Which is one of those tropes that has been used a lot lately in time travel movies. I mean, not just uh, this one, but uh, there's a the specific line from Terminator Genesis, which I thought was rather underrated, uh, where uh, um, uh, Kyle Reese uh, says, time travel makes my head hurt. And uh this is one of the most convoluted uh, temporal streams uh, of uh, any film that I can recall, except maybe Primer. <laughs> basically, this is a between, this is basically a cross between Primer and a James Bond movie, but that's kind of right. awesome. I but, mean, I was, uh, was going to say the the thing worth noting is, is uh, Nolan was technically correct. There is no actual non-linear time travel uh, in this movie. Everybody who's going forward is going forward in real time. Everybody who's going backward is going backward in in real time, um, which is a bit of a nut to get your mind around, uh, at least initially. That, that, that said, I think I'm probably pretty solidly inoculated against this sort of thing precisely because uh, I am one of these idiots who uh, uh, actually does think about you know the, how the mechanics of time travel would work, given the time travel is completely fictional. And basically, if you're putting time travel in a movie, it could damn well be magic. Uh, it's 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 not a real thing. Uh, that being said, uh, the other reason that I bring up the Terminator movies as a sort of a point of comparison here uh, is the thing that I kept thinking about uh, through this movie was that it was sort of an inversion, appropriately enough. Uh, to uh, what I generally refer to as the Terminator paradox, which is, with the exception of the first Terminator movie, which was actually a closed temporal loop, and the fourth Terminator movie, which didn't actually have any time travel in it, it was time travel adjacent, but didn't include any directly, all of the other Terminator movies, rather like the uh, the Watcher subplot from the series Fringe, if you know oh, yeah. that, are basically about one particular alternate future attempting to muscle its way into it. I thought of Fringe a lot. Yeah, whereas whereas this movie is one of the rare instances that I can think of, if not the only instance that I can think of, uh, of a particular alternate future attempting to muscle its way out of existence. <laughs> that, was an inter- that was interesting. That was an interesting uh, point to come to, uh, that, that the past had ruined the future so much because it is the past that the future wanted to snuff it out so they themselves would be snuffed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, clo- the closest uh, thing... No, is- I don't think they thought they would be snuffed. You thought that they... Yeah, they were willing to. They were willing. They were to under the impression that it would actually improve. Oh, that's why they were talking about the. Yeah, that, that's why they were talking about the grandfather paradox. That's right. Yeah, they were like, "Well, let's see what happens. Let's just try it. <laughs> you know, what's the worst yeah. that could happen?" Is essentially what they're going for. They're like, "Well, if it doesn't work, we're fucked any either way." So. It's a little bit like uh, the the uh, actually the other example that I can think of relatively recently, ironically, also released by Warner Brothers, uh, was the uh, uh, resolution of uh, Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, the animated movie that was released uh, earlier this year, which or, or sorry, last year, uh, which again, and I apologize if this constitutes a spoiler, the end of the movie is them retconning the entire last 10 years of uh uh, DC animated movies by uh, undoing the uh, the Flashpoint paradox, which I think is from I want to say 2011. So that's uh, an interesting instance of uh, well, I'd like to say a, a a a reality attempting to muscle its way out of existence. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe the uh, they maybe the future people thought that the world would just change around them, but somehow they would still be there. Uh, we don't really know how this sort of thing would work, precisely because. To the best of our knowledge, time travel is not a thing. So the rules are, you know, whatever the hell you want them to be. But in the logic of the movie, it's suggested that they're not, they're, they don't necessarily believe that they will die if this happens. Um, uh, I, I think a character actually says they're willing to take that chance or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, well, obviously the future scientist who killed herself thought it was going to happen. Or yeah. yeah. But she wasn't really she was Well, yeah, well, th- th- that actually ties into one of the uh, flaws of the film that becomes annoying. Which is? Okay, so there's the, the gimmick is she's developed this thing 
And so she's going to separate it into parts and send it back in the pet. Just destroy it. <laughs> just fucking destroy it. End of yep. story. <laughs> Why are you sending it back into the past? Why? It doesn't make any that sense. It doesn't make any sense to, to just take it apart and send it away. Destroy it. Destroy the notes. <laughs> She's an Oppenheimer with a conscience. Oppenheimer could have just burned the notes. Okay, now make a bomb. <laughs> It's just uh, I could I, I could. the fundamental gimmick of the film is undermined by it being a stupid <laughs> idea. Uh, I I thought of that as well while I was watching the film. I it I tried not to let it bother me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, yeah. That's what I did. That's what I ended up doing. I was like, you know what? <laughs> it's still in my mind, but I'm just kind of it's it's. Uh, it's a uh, it's a MacGuffin. It's that's exactly what it is. It's a MacGuffin. It allows us to see cool time travel things that and and reverse bullets and and all sorts of crazy stuff going on and cool spy thriller stuff. But overall, the 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 high concept science fiction of it, as Jenner said, is it's not the rules don't really matter. As I mean, the the film itself is. Cre- well, they matter to an extent. <laughs> they matter to you, to you definitely. Well, yeah. I, well, I, think I, mean, I mean, at a certain at a certain point, you can like you can assume magic or whatever. But like, if the people don't act like people you know or do things that seem to be reasonable in a world that, that we, we can imagine, it, it, you you kind of it, it can take you out of the fictional dream, and that kind of takes me a little bit out of the fictional dream of the of the movie that people are doing things that don't make sense, you know. Uh, another thing, and this is another another of the flaws of the film for me, is that there were many times when I had no clue what the motivation of a character was to do anything. They're just acting, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to go along with the ride. But partly because of the mumbling dialogue, partly because of the convoluted nature of the plot, but also partly because I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure if it's well set up. Oh, I'll give you an example. How is the painting a hold that the that the Russian has over her. I well, never I want to get into that in a little bit. Yeah. How is that a hold over her? What the, hold? I, I mean, I, it was never it was never clear to me what the, why that meant. The best uh, the best uh, I could and so and, and there and there are lots of little things like that in the film that, you know, it's a little thing here, it's a little thing there, and by the end of it it's a million of them and uh, and Again, I love the movie. My, I mean, my general impression is I love it. It's a great movie. I always enjoy Christopher Nolan. But <laughs> but by the end of it, it has the effect that a number of his movies have on me, which is the plot is so overwrought and complicated that by the end, I have the feeling of not a nice hole that has been created, but lots of little pieces that are just flying around. Lots and of uh, that was my impression of this movie as well. There's lots well, of little pieces flying around. And I and the emotion that I'm supposed to be feeling at the end, I'm not feeling. Lots of uh, lots of bits of business just washing up like, uh, on you, like the uh, like the residue of a future war, uh, <laughs> more like the or the or the residue of a uh, a, a, a uh, the 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 probe they launched an interstellar that on the planet with. The oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I I actually did come up uh, as I was watching it with an almost immediate retcon as to why uh, the uh, the scientist didn't just destroy the thing. Uh, uh, basically, because if you destroy it, anybody can go back to the spot uh, or forward to the spot where it was destroyed and pluck it out. But if it is physically somewhere else in space and time, uh, that may actually uh, uh, sort of maintain the quantum integrity of everything that's going on. That doesn't work because you could also go back to this space and time when she when she broke it apart <laughs> <laughs> and just stop her from doing that. My point is, like, if you enter time travel as as a as a thing, you can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> My point, as much as anything else, is that didn't bother me. There are there are some structural aspects of the movie that. Uh, didn't work so great for me. Uh, like the, uh, the whole battle sequence uh, at uh, at uh, the climax of the movie is unbelievably ambitious, but in in the sense of like 
you, I mean, you've got people who are going forward in time with forward firing ammunition. You've got people who are going forward in, tire, uh, in time with reverse firing ammunition. You've got people coming from the other direction with both options. It, it, it's it's almost like uh, it, it almost seems feels like it's trying to juggle too much to the uh, to the expense of the clarity of it all. It reminded me a little bit of the climactic battle from the Phantom Menace, in that uh, George Lucas, in that case, was trying to one up himself at the end of Return of the Jedi from having a three-front uh, battle to having a four-front battle, and it, it it tipped over. It was uh, it, it, it was you can't fault the ambition, but the execution had well suffered a well, little bit. To it. <laughs> One of the problems with the execution is the antagonists are never established. Uh, I couldn't tell you who they're fighting, what they look like, how many of them were killed. I couldn't tell you anything about them because I, I never seem to see the antagonists, except for the guy who, like, they find down below uh, the two guys. Full stock. But the others seem to be nothing. <laughs> yeah, were they saber's private That's, that's what I assume, I yeah. Guess. There is a distinct aspect of uh, of faceless minionry in the uh, in the, the antagonist side in this. Movie. I mean, you get that in Inception too. I mean, you, I mean, they're fake yeah. in Inception, but you still get that sort of feeling. I want to go back yes. to the painting. Yes, about. So one of the minor quibbles I had about the movie is so I heard this movie was really convoluted, so I sort of approached it like work. Um, <laughs> I, just, I was expecting. I was expecting Primer, which. Jenner brought up. It wasn't as bad as Primer, not nearly as bad as Primer. Or by bad, I mean complicated. But <laughs> I, I, did find, I did find the first half of the movie so convoluted just to set up the players. Like the whole painting, all just just to sit down with Kenneth Branagh's character. There was so much going on where I started to tune out and I was thinking, mm. I was thinking at that point in the movie, I was like, this whole movie could be told without the time time inversion. It just makes for some cool action scenes, but this is just a lot of finagling and a lot of a lot of business um and so i i did start to like tune out and like why is this movie so complicated we haven't even gotten in, into anything that interesting so i mean then it did it did start to pick up and it become a lot more interesting but i just wonder why he had to make that first part of the movie so complicated I, well one of the uh, one of the things that uh, was has been noted about this uh, this picture is that uh, Nolan start uh, claims that he started getting the uh, or de developing the idea about twenty years ago. Um, one gets the uh, the feeling from this that it was essentially a concept that uh, the maker was so in love with that uh, when it came uh, that, that he ended up kind of building the story all the way around that to the point where maybe that was a little bit overdeveloped uh the the actual narrative uh has i i i like this movie more than this particular comment uh, uh makes it sound the overall construction of the actual sequence of events in the movie itself has a little bit of a first drafty quality to it uh there are some aspects of it that could have been trimmed or streamlined or clarified just for again from a from a structural standpoint the the position I came from uh, with the movie, what finally made me able to just just lean in and enjoy it, was that I stopped looking at it as a science fiction film. There's plenty of sci-fi in it, but it is, to me, first and foremost, a spy thriller. It's, it's a James Bond movie. And as a James Bond mo movie, I think it works really well. Uh, the faceless minions, the, uh, the uh, arms dealer villain who's... who's surprisingly not chewing up scenery as much as Kenneth Branagh usually does, but doing a fantastic accent. Um, it's all very, uh, it's all very spy thriller up to including the, uh, the, uh, the end sequence, uh, which gets a little out there, crazy, uh, convoluted. Yeah. yeah well, no, uh, in, in many ways it is one of the best James Bond movies of the last yeah. 20 years. Right up there with the limits of control. Um, <laughs> gr granted, I tend to personally find a lot of James Bond movies to be relatively disposable. So in this case, yeah, in this case, it was uh, the, the the big ideas in the thing, which are the least James Bond aspect of it, uh, that are the part that I found most compelling and most interesting. But uh it's it's very far from my favorite Nolan film, but uh, I still liked it tremendously. That's uh, I, and I know I always say this, uh, but uh, with, even in the midst of all these criticisms, that's that's probably the lead that I'm burying there. 
Uh, that said, I would like to shout out, uh, as Nate did, uh, to uh, Kenneth Branagh's accent. Uh, that's actually a really good accent. A lot, uh, and the uh, there, uh, it was one of those things that got uh, got uh, pointed out uh, as a lot of people thinking it was a silly accent in reviews. But uh, a lot of I'm guessing that most of those people don't actually know what a Russian accent sounds like. Yeah. Uh, friend of friend of mine from uh, from a haunted house uh, once taught me. The, uh, the this is just an amusing little bit of business, but uh, I, I figure it's worth uh, releasing in a public forum. A friend of mine at a uh, at a uh, haunted house uh, taught me the perfect key phrase for getting into a Russian accent, uh, which is "I want to drive around and listen to the techno music." <laughs> and the faster that you can say that. Uh, with moving your lips as little as possible, the better you are doing as a Russian <laughs> accent. Well, he he certainly nailed that. That's right. Up, that's right up there with using the uh, the phrase "my cocaine" to do to sound like Michael. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's one for an Irish accent. You say my cocaine, and it means my cocaine. You're doing my cocaine. For for Irish, I always think of Gabriel Byrne when he says five. It's just five. <laughs> That's not a bad either. <laughs> worth worth noting, uh, uh, Kane's uh, uh, appearance in this film because it's a Christopher Nolan movie was only the one scene long, and I wish that we had had more of him. But it was still yeah. one of his, one of his feistier turns. Uh, in, yeah, it was a good, a nice little. Uh, yeah. I love the waiter who refuses to box up his lip or not even. Yeah, you box it certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like I kind of like imagining that uh, that he's literally Harry Palmer after a couple of generations of promotions. And finally getting a decent. <laughs> they did. They made fun of his suit. Something uh, I thought was interesting while I was watching it is if you uh, if you notice, um, I oh god, I've forgotten her name. The actress, the uh, female lead. Elizabeth Elizabeth Debicki. Thank you. I had to go through my notes. Elizabeth Debicki, um if you if you watch the framing of every scene she's in, not a single man is put on an apple box. That woman is allowed to be tall. And yeah, she was oh. taller than both the both the male I freaking love seeing that. <laughs> the, the the woman is sylphic. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh. <laughs> So about that character, actually. So, you know, Christopher Nolan's often accused of being more interested in ideas and, and, and concepts than his characters. Like, she's a well-developed character, but I'd never really bought protagonist's relationship with her. The fact that he was always trying to save her. Uh, I feel like he that felt shoehorned just to have a sort of human relationship in the movie. It seemed to come out of nowhere. Like, he's like, she's trying to save existence, but he's like, but, but. You cannot, you know, you cannot hurt the girl or or her daughter. Uh, I just felt that was a little. Nolan just wanted to have some sort of human interest in the story. Now you could justify it by saying that that's the sort of thing that happens in James Bond yeah. movies, but this is not okay. All jokes aside, this isn't a James Bond movie. It's presenting itself as something more serious, but there is a lack of emotional depth in the movie, and that's an example of it. And again, I, 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 I'm going to agree with Jenner. I, I don't want this to bury the lead of, I like this movie. This is a good oh, yeah. movie. And I, and I want to emphasize that I love that movies like this can still be made. But yes, there are some flaws. And that is, that is for me, that was one of them. That, yeah, I didn't understand why. I, in fact, I was thinking it even as it was happening. It's like, why does he care about her? How was that set yeah. up on, yeah, on any level? I just, it, I figured I it was just because he was a good guy. You're doing good guy things. <laughs> that's really, that's really what I believe. That's, I think it was just a, this is the right thing to do. Okay. As everybody uh, keeps telling him, and as he finally believes at the end of the movie, he is the protagonist. It's literally. <laughs> but also, in a certain epistemological, or I guess film epistemological sense, uh, the most uh, thoroughly developed uh, characters in the movie are Sator and uh, and his wife. So all of the sketchier developed characters are probably just going to be naturally drawn to the both of them like moths to a flame from a narrative standpoint. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. True. Yeah, she, there, there was one really, really bad line of dialogue in the movie that drove me crazy. I don't know if you guys uh, 
felt the same. And uh, Robert Pattinson is explaining to uh, Kat and protagonist what's going to happen if the algorithm gets set off at the end of the world. And then she goes, including my son. Like, yeah, the whole world. Not the end of the world or your son. No, not him. He's your the one who will be there. We're talking about. So I just hate it. It made her seem dumb. They could have just cut that line. It was the end of the scene. I just that line drew me crazy. I rewound it to make sure <laughs> right? like I hated it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, I missed it. That, that, particular, that particular line does have uh, a, a bit of a feeling of what would human people uh, say in this particular <laughs> moment? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, no one has been accused of being a, a little overly intellectual and uh, uh, to the point of abstracting from more effective human emotions, which is one of those things that he keeps kind of throwing himself into without ever quite nailing like a certain of the ruminations from Interstellar. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> it, it's kind of like uh, Thomas Jane from Arrested Development. I just want my kids. <laughs> No, the uh, there there are points where, uh, where I, like I say, it fe- it feels like a, a very very clever computer attempting to imitate uh, human speech and behavior. Um, from an aesthetic standpoint, on the whole, in Nolan's film, that's almost uh, a a a feature as much as a bug, really. But that particular line did kind of rankle. Has Nolan ever really been known for his characterization? Do you think? No, no not really. Yeah. No. This is why he picks such sterling actors, because most of the time uh, he is depending upon the natural skills and charisma of the actors he chooses to kind of carry the whole thing across. Uh, I mean, uh, his his best developed characters ever are probably uh, Elizabeth Debicki in this movie um, and uh, good Uh, Lord Pierce in uh, Memento, (laughs) maybe Robin Williams in uh, in Insomnia. Uh But uh, because I don't think Pacino was actually particularly good in that movie, but Williams Williams was playing against type. But again, it was very much Williams himself kind of putting the character across rather than necessarily anything that was particularly effective or compelling built into the characterization of the character in the first place, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no. He's, uh, more than a lot of uh, more than a lot of genius directors, he definitely, definitely relies upon his actors as um, taking up some of the slack in the creative process. <laughs> I would say, like there, like there's a there's a point of comparison you can make uh, between uh, Nolan and uh, George Lucas, uh, in that neither is really known for their. <laughs> Emotional uh, resilience. They're great dialogue. They're great characters. Um, Lucas they're good at other aspects. They're better at. I'll, I'll put it this way: they're much better at other aspects of filmmaking, and the aspects they're better at are very similar. There's overlap. I'm, I'm going to go with the comparison that you just made between Nolan and George Lucas. Is kind of like the old line: if it bends, it works. If it breaks, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, That's Woody Allen. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. Uh, crimes and misdemeanors. Thank you. Yeah. Alan um, Alda, I believe, is the shithead director. Who's <laughs> goes back before that, though. That's uh, the, but uh, but. Oh yeah, uh, it's older. Definitely older. Harped on so uh, so acutely as it was in that picture, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lucas would have been much happier if there were no actors on screen whatsoever. Right. Uh, whereas Nolan, like I say, has sort of a more generous relationship uh, with yeah. uh, with actors, I think, in that they are doing so much of the heavy lifting uh, for the, well, the actual characterization of uh, of the picture that he gives them, I, I would imagine, you know, a, a great degree of, uh, of freedom in how they want to approach things. Well, well, one thing that is that is one, one thing where it's not fair to Nolan to make that comparison is that he is apparently much, much better at working with his actors. Than well, that that kind of that's uh, <laughs> is apparently kind of cold and standoffish, and Nolan is much more. You know, he he sets things up for them to do well, knowing that he's depending on them to sort of bring some life into these characters. He's apparently very good at allowing them 
not not just the not just the freedom, but also like the comfort level to yeah, just do what you got to do. <clears throat> I, I think. I, also, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I, oh, I think it helps a lot that Nolan works with a lot of practical effects, especially with this movie. The practical effects in physical spaces. I mean, most of the mm. effects in the movie are just running the film backwards or just have an actor run backwards, and that gives mm -hmm. you most of the effects. Uh, I think that goes a long way towards making the actors, you know, letting them do what they naturally need to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it also get, it, it leads to a much uh, more realistic feeling as well. It's, it's how you really feel like things are going backwards around you. There's, there's nothing to take you out of the moment in my opinion, when it comes to uh, yeah. when it comes to the sciency, yancy stuff. Not at all. Yeah. It's great. I, I occasionally refer to Christopher Nolan as the bastard child of Stanley Kubrick and Mike. <laughs> um, but I mean that as a compliment, aside from it can leave uh, some of the, uh, obviously some of the sort of uh, uh, content aspect of uh, the films a little bit chilly at times, but at the same time, uh, I cannot think of, with the exception of a couple of slightly dodgy effects in Batman Begins, I cannot remember a single frame of uh, one of his movies that was not completely convincing uh, from a visual standpoint, uh, particularly these, these last few. I never thought it, when I was watching Tenet that I was looking at special effects, like at all, yeah. period. <clears throat> if, if nothing else, it's, uh, I mean, not for nothing do I point to Stanley Kubrick uh, in that regard, because, I mean, think of effects movies, which ones do the effects not date in? Well, 2001's uh, A Space Odyssey is damn near top of that list, yeah. but uh, I, I would put uh, pretty much almost all of Nolan's uh, uh, effects-driven pictures uh, in, in that category as well. Blade the, uh, the, the visual verisimilitude is, uh, is faultless. It's a very good-looking film, definitely. Who, sh who shot it? Yeah. Was it his same? Uh, who sh do you remember? Oh, I'll give you a sec. It, it was shot entirely in IMAX. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, we all didn't get to work. <laughs> Maybe yeah. one day. I do. I do kind of wish I had. Uh, go on, Shane. I I do have. I, so I did like this movie. I have one more nitpick. One more thing that drove <laughs> me crazy was the reverse heat transfer. That, um, why was that in there? Is that just to, so he can get out of a car explosion? Because it, it the reason it drives me crazy because it introduces all these other problems. Like it would that would fuck up every biological process in the human body. And also, how would you fire a bullet? How would you fire a gun? Yeah. yeah. If it's not... Why did he put that in there? It, it just opens up all these holes, for me at least. And it was just it just seems like he did it just to get him out of that car. I think that's exactly what it was. Which he didn't have to write in. There didn't have to be yeah. a person. But uh, no, you're, you're right. Uh, that scene felt a little bit funny when I saw it the first time. It felt a little funnier the uh, uh, the second time. And then, of course, I promptly forgot about it until you mentioned it just now. But uh, that does have a feeling of being maybe one gag too many. See, for, for me, I immediately thought of a line from Hudson Hawk. Yeah, that's probably what happened. <laughs> <laughs> underrated <laughs> movie. Unbelievably underrated movie. <laughs> I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, it's, is, is that pile? I I think so. It it almost uh, Jess and I almost broke up over it because I showed it to her and she hated it so much. Oh, how can you hate? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> plenty of people hated that movie. Why would you hate it that much? <laughs> I mean, hate we didn't that movie on my favorite bad movie podcast. Yeah, it's it's a world renowned bad movie that I absolutely love. Oh, no, I think I think it's a legitimately good movie. Some of the dialogue, and particularly some of the dialogue deliveries in that movie, are some of the best I've ever heard. Like Richard E. Grant saying, "I'll torture you so slowly, you'll think it's a <laughs> uh, it's, uh, on the very short list of my favorite line deliveries in anything ever." Probably only exceeded by uh, Kirk Douglas in Out of the Past saying, "I hate surprises myself." You want to just shut the door and, and forget the whole thing? <laughs> That was back all the way back in 1949. But uh, anyways, yeah, yeah, no, I, I just, uh, I, I, I've, uh, I have noted Hudson Hawk on the list for, uh, for you. That's excellent. Um, because I, I would love to visit that one uh, again as well. But in any event, back to Tenet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what'd you guys think of the, uh, the Die Hard 2 color coding at the end? Uh, 
with the two teams, the red and the blue. Actually, when you know when Aaron Taylor Johnson was explaining the whole end, this character Ives, and he's drawing on the screen, I'm like, how are we going to follow all this? But I was thinking that as a viewer, and of course, you can't really. It goes back to the one of the early lines: don't try to understand it, just yeah. feel it. Yeah, no, but, I yeah. But even with the help, even with the helpful color coding, which I thought was hilarious, which reminded me of Die Hard. The, yeah, the color coding didn't do anything. It didn't help at all. I couldn't tell when people needed to wear masks, who was going backwards, who was going forwards. And sometimes people would be going backwards, then they go forwards, and then sometimes they needed masks, and sometimes they didn't. I got pretty lost uh, by the end there. Um, but again, you just yeah. Robert Pattinson was the only one who might be affected, and then he won. yeah, <laughs> because he's like, oh, I changed places. Oh, you never showed us. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, say you start off on blue team, you're going in one direction, then you accidentally go through one of the turnabouts. Do you have or do you have uh, like a red team uh, bandana you know, handy just in case you get re reversed or what have you? I don't know. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he totally should have done that. Like when he yeah, got. Yeah. It was an admirable, an admirable effort to attempt to retain clarity, given that retaining clarity was probably a practical impossibility <laughs> in that sequence. You, <laughs> as the movie keeps trying to uh, to subtly and not so subtly uh, uh, drive you toward, you you just have to roll with it. Un unless you know. I I have one loose end that I uh, that I didn't quite. I think I got, but I'm not sure. Uh, was the guy who saved prota the protagonist at the beginning? Was that Neil? Did he have the little tassel on his backpack? Yeah, that, okay. Yeah, that red like tassel. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah, presumably protagonists set all this up in the right. future, right? <laughs> yeah. So you know what this movie made me think of, which is is going to sound like an insult, is the Ben Affleck John Woo vehicle paycheck. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> which Ben Affleck, uh, Ben Affleck. <laughs> See, uses a machine that can see the future, watches what's going to happen to him, and then sit, gives himself a bag of items to get him through what's about to happen. That's that's <laughs> the movie. Uh, that, that was a fun little picture. It was, it was fun. It was, it, it's eminently disposable, but I do find I find myself thinking about it uh, from time to time, in sort of in the sense of being one of the more cheerful, you know, longhead science fiction idea pictures uh, that uh, that I can recall. It was. It was the closest thing you can get to Cracker Jack when you're ostensibly adapting a Philip K. Dick story. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about Robert Pattinson no. at all. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I, I really only knew him as Edward, even though I'd never seen any of those movies, the Twilight movies, or as Cedric Diggory, where everyone loves Cedric Diggory, but he was really just in that movie to die. <laughs> um, yeah, right. I, I thought I thought he was really fantastic. I thought he was... We, we, we've spoken about... Uh, the lead's charisma. I thought he was very charismatic. I was very surprised, and he was a delight every time he was on screen. They had a good chemistry as well. They were a good pairing. They, somebody should make a buddy cop movie like, with these two guys. I think yeah. they would kill. Yeah. Uh, like I say, John David Washington, if he doesn't, if he is not charismatic on screen, his dad's probably going to literally <laughs> uh, But... Uh, <laughs> No, as far as Pattinson, uh, I, I know for the longest time, of course, he had the bad rap uh, for the Twilight pictures, Uh I'm sure he didn't mind the paycheck, but uh, he has been doing in, uh, seriously and increasingly fantastic work for years now. Um, uh, like uh, the uh, the one that I saw most recently that was that would be most likely to be most completely jaw dropping to his Twilight fans was probably High Life. Uh, the uh, I, I did see that. Yeah, no, like I say, that that movie is seven different kinds of messed up, and uh, and uh, he's like fully committed in it. Uh, no, I, I still need to see Good Time, which is uh, yeah, that's not my that is mine as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, by the guy, the Safdie brothers who made Uncut Gems, which I, I also haven't seen Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems is at least the third time that Adam Sandler should have gotten an Oscar, and he wasn't even on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. And I've heard Good Time is even more intense than that, or at least more frenetic. But yeah, that's that's one that's been on my list for a long time. Oh. I did I did see uh, Pattinson in a movie I did not like by David Cronenberg called Cosmopolis. Oh, I like Cosmopolis. Oh, that's you did. One of, I... That's one of the funniest movies Cronenberg has made. Was it funny? Was it supposed to be funny? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I couldn't stand it, but I, I only saw it the one time a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> he was also really good in Maps uh, Maps to the Stars. Oh, yeah. Uh, although he was much more a supporting role in that case. But no, as I say, he's been doing you know very, very solid work. 
as a supporting or ensemble or character player for, for a while now. I still want to see uh, 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 The Devil All the Time, the, uh, the Netflix picture with, uh, with Tom Holland that came out a couple of months ago. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. on my list, too. Yeah. The, uh, I think the two and a half hour runtime is preventing me from sitting down. Okay, well, a little bit daunting. The the runtime has. It, I always say I would have I would have seen uh, uh, Belatar's Satan Tango plenty of times by now if it weren't eight hours. That's also it's a uh, good to point out. That's why we only did one movie this week, is it's two and a half hours. These two and a half hour films can be tough to get to once you get to a certain age. This one didn't feel like a. It didn't feel like it. No. Oh no! I've, I've sat through ninety minute movies that have felt much longer than this. Well, I mean, it's worth noting the movie is sheerly and unremittently propulsive, uh, but not in a way that I think ever really feels breathless. Again, with the possible exception of the climactic uh, uh, battle, which is, uh, all things being equal, probably the, the segment of the picture that I have the most issue with. Although, great. Even so, as much as anything else, you can't fault it for ambition. Uh, if you have extraordinarily high ambitions and you do okay with them, that's, that's still okay. It also had a great villain death. To me, I love the villain death. Oh, yeah. Just some that's yeah, <laughs> when they're just dragging his body behind the boat, just carrying it away. I love that. Why are they dragging the body? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> why did why did Cat, this a reference I, to the Iliad? Why just leave it in the water? <laughs> I go. I'm gonna go with they're dragging the body because fuck. <laughs> That's kind of what I got from it too. I was. I just figured she tied it up and just wanted it to eventually get eaten by fish or something, or a shark would grab it. You know what? That could be right. They got to dispose yeah. of <laughs> That'll about do it for us here on What's on the Pile. Uh, next week, join us for a Terry Gilliam double feature with Jabberwocky and Time Bandits. You can find us on Twitter at What's on the Pile or go to whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out. Mm-hmm.